Well, good morning, church family. You can be seated this morning. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at Golden Hills. One of the newest pastors here at Golden Hills coming to you straight from Northeast Ohio. I hope that you're happy to be here this morning. I am not out shoveling snow, so I'm happy to be here in California this morning. Uh, Before we worship together uh, in God's word, by studying of God's word, I have a few announcements that I wanna make. We launched a revamped version of our website this last week. I hope that you would spend some time getting to check that out, goldenhills.org. You'll be able to sign up for small groups, see events for each ministry, and find more information about what's going on here at Golden Hills. And we have a new revamped app that will be coming soon after that we will better be able to communicate with you, our church family. Also, we invite you to meet two of our global outreach ministry partners, Katie and Tylon Pervenecki. They work with the Navigators and are preparing to move to a new area of service. And they are going to be in the portico after service today. And two other things to remember for the next two Sundays. Next Sunday, January 16th, is a baptism Sunday. We're going to be baptizing several candidates in between the 8.30 and 10.30 services and after the 10.30 service. So I invite you to be there to rejoice with us. And January 23rd at 2 p.m. is our annual business meeting. There you can join us as we welcome new members, hear from our pastors. And if you're a member at Golden Hills, this is something you should definitely plan to be part of. Also, and lastly, on January 23rd, kids' ministry will begin at the 8.30 service for walkers through four-year-olds. Kids' ministry for all ages is still happening during the 10.30 service. So as we begin this morning, would you join me in opening up with a word of prayer? Father God, we confess that on our best days, we are unprofitable servants, that we are entirely dependent on you for the ability to speak and hear and understand and obey. And so it is to you alone we look. We agree this morning together that we lift our eyes to the hills and say, where does our help come from? Let us agree this morning that our help comes from you, the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Help us then, Lord, we pray as we study the Bible here today, protect us from ever becoming a people that honor you with our lips and tithes, but whose hearts are far from you. Amen. Amen. Okay, when is the last time you had a good heart checkup? Not the kind that requires you to be hooked up to a bunch of wires, jump on a treadmill and run until you feel like you're going to pass out. Not that kind of heart checkup and not the kind of heart checkup where you have to get blood drawn and they look at your heart enzymes and all the stuff that's going on in there. Not that kind of heart checkup, but the kind of heart checkup where uh, we ask ourselves specific questions and answer them honestly to get descriptors that tell us where our heart is and where our treasure really is. There are lots of different questions we could ask ourselves today. Here are just a few that I want you to think about. What do you tend to daydream about? What fears crowd in when you're alone? What kind of goals do you set for yourself? What mistakes do you most regret? What do you most often talk about? See, questions like this and their subsequent answers help us as descriptors that tell us where our heart's treasure really is. And so we're going to be looking at that today, but I want to make something very clear today. As I stand here in front of you, new, not having spoken to you before, and you not knowing me all that well, I want to assure you that I seek not what is yours, 
but you. And I'm echoing that, obviously, from 2 Corinthians 12, 14. Paul said this and is a marvelous sentence. That sentence laid in the back of my mind as I was preparing this last week and prior to that, as I was preparing to speak to you, I seek not what is yours, but you. My desire is to labor today, to spend and be spent out for your souls, not your money. Make no mistake, though, I am in pursuit of something this morning, and it is your heart, and it is God's glory. Giving, tithing, contributions, money, when we hear those words, especially here in the church setting, they do something to and in us, don't they? Some of us recoil with cynicism. Some of us perk up with curiosity. Oh, where's this message about giving going? Some of us might feel guilt. Some of us may well up with pride because we're doing our part in the giving category. So why would there be a pursuit of your heart and a message about giving? Isn't the object with giving really about the money? What's the connection or the importance of the state of our hearts in giving to God? Let's uh, agree this morning that the Red Cross, the United Way, the Salvation Army do not care about the state of your hearts when you give. They do not care about your motives when you give. Whatever political party you may be affiliated with, when you drop them a dime or two, they do not care about the motives of your heart or why you're giving. So why would your church care? I mean, as long as we can keep the lights on, what does it matter what your motives or the condition of your heart are when you give? You may be tempted to think, well, the bottom line is, I do it, I give, period. I did my duty. We are bottom line people, aren't we? To our core, we all love the bottom line. Did it need done? Yes. Did I help to get it done? Yes. Okay, move on. Well, not so fast. You see, the reason your church cares about your motives and your heart as it relates to giving is because God cares. And I would like to argue today that the condition of our hearts as it relates to giving is of the utmost importance because it is a matter of God's glory and God is very concerned about his glory. Listen to Isaiah 48, verses nine through 11. For my namesake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. God is very concerned about his glory. And so we should passionately pursue glorifying him, especially as we give. Now, some of us who love to hear a good message in order that we can pass it along to somebody who really needs to hear it, may be thinking, why don't you just address the non-givers among us? After all, those of us who are giving, uh, we're fulfilling our obligation. Talk to those folks who aren't giving anything at all. Okay, I will later. And from what I can tell, just as I'm getting familiar with the financials here at Golden Hills, as my job requires, uh, we may not have a lot of non-givers, but that is an assumption at this point, a, f a pretty fair assumption, but still an assumption. You see, non-giving or giving out of obligation or reluctance or compulsion or simply as a matter of just meeting a need all have the same root. That root is a distrust of God from an unsteady and perhaps joyless heart and a lackluster opinion of God's glory. Let's find our firm ground here today in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 11. 
Listen, starting in verse six, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Now, as we read chapter nine of 2 Corinthians, specifically here, verses six through 11, we see one imperative, which is verse seven. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The remaining verses are there as help for our cheer. All of it is motivation and reasons why we should heed this imperative to give cheerfully. You see, with that in mind, let's explore the condition of cheerfulness and the absence of it as it relates to giving and discover with the Spirit's help why it is so important, why it is so important to give cheerfully because our our state of heart really matters. How we feel when we give really matters. We know this because Paul said, God loves a cheerful giver. This cheerfulness, church family, is not mere willpower giving. It is giving that is rooted in delight in God and rooted in joy in God. And I want to make this abundantly clear this morning. Any attempt to address the giving of money that does not begin with an acknowledgement of the fact that all we have and all we are are from the hand of God is a teaching that starts in the wrong place. We do not want to make that mistake here this morning. So while we're going to root ourselves in 2 Corinthians 9, 7 today, I want you to note 1 Chronicles 29. See here, let me get it. 1 Chronicles 29, verses 11 through 14. A prayer from David says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you and of your own have we given you. You see, David knew here that both the ability and the heart to give were themselves gifts from God. David knew this was true because he knew that all things come from God and whatever they had to give to God was his own to begin with. Now, you might expect in a message regarding giving that you are going to hear a word or two about figures and amounts and percentages, but my desire is to steer clear of those today. Undoubtedly, many misunderstood sermons on tithing have left some to mistakenly believe that 90% 
of what they have is theirs and 10% belongs to God. I don't wanna make that mistake this morning. Psalm 50, 12 reminds us, if I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. It is all his, all of it. So let's work out a question today. Why then give cheerfully? Finding the answer to this question is a no doubt a critical step in order for us to answer other questions about giving. Answers that we're not going to get to today, but I hope that you would investigate as homework. Questions like how should we give, how much, how often, and to whom? But for now, let's let the text define what cheerful giving isn't so we have a proper understanding. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. Not reluctantly means not giving and wishing you could avoid it or giving as little as possible or giving only to escape punishment. That is the spirit behind taxation, not biblical giving. Rather, we should be giving with a freeness and a pleasure and proportionately. Now, I only want to address uh, proportionate giving today as it relates to reluctance, how we're told not to give. And understand this, someone who has a large income gives reluctantly if he gives no more than someone who has only a fraction of that income. And someone who has few expenses and lives frugally if he gives no more than someone who has a large family and large expenses cannot be said to give cheerfully. He evidently gives reluctantly if he does not give in proportion to what he has. And we are also told not to give under compulsion. A cheerful giver does not need a guilt trip. Guilt is a poisonous motivator. A cheerful giver does not need an emotional plea or a good arm twisting or I'll wait until there's a cause that inspires me until I give. No, a cheerful giver does not feel obligated to give just because the basket's coming and what would folks think if they see me and it goes by, they don't drop something in. We are not compulsed to give that way. Cheerful givers are not compulsed to give, so cheerful giving is not done reluctantly or forcibly by compulsion. In Acts 5, 1 through 11, we can see a story, Ananias and Sapphira, who stand as examples of giving for the wrong reasons, not out of a cheerful heart. Again, for homework, check that story out. This is what cheerful giving isn't. And if we have been giving this way and the Spirit convicts us of this, how do we change? Well, that's a big question. How do we change? If we feel this conviction of reluctant giving, non-giving, compulsed giving, and we sit and we listen, and we go, I see this is what the Word says, and I would like to change. I don't know how. Week after week, I sit in church and I hear good, the word preached and I hear the word and I sit in my small group and I do my devotions and I see things in the word and I want to change, but I don't know how. Let's agree that God is not interested first in mere behavior modification. God is interested in supernatural change, change that is inspired and shaped by the word of God and change that is for his glory. Here is a key verse on life change. Write this one down. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. We are transformed. Listen, we are changed into the image of Christ by beholding Christ seeing him for who he is 
And that happens through the word and by the gospel. If we have a giving problem here this morning, we simply have a beholding problem. Cheerful giving can only happen when it is joy-motivated giving that expresses contentment in God as it beholds his glory. So why should we give this way? Well, we're going to look at two reasons today. We should give cheerfully because it is good for our hearts and because it glorifies God. Think for a moment about why you give to your church. If you had a one-question survey laying in your lap this morning and it simply said, why do you give? How would you answer? Many of us may say, I give because good things need to get done. Okay? And many of you may say, I give because I'm supposed to give. All right? That is giving from necessity and duty. However, the New Testament presents us with some differing motivations for giving, doesn't it? 1 Corinthians 13.3 tells us that if I give away all I have, friends, that is 100% giving. If I give away all I have, but have not love, I gain nothing. Isn't that amazing? Paul is saying the value of the gift comes not from how badly it's needed, but whether or not I give it in love. So if we give for the wrong reason, then what we've given is actually of no value regardless of the need of meeting? Yes, says Paul. And if I do in fact give, I do check that box. I'm doing my duty. If I do in fact give, but I do it reluctantly or under compulsion, God does not approve of that gift? Yes, says Paul. That is correct. Because our state of heart matters when we give. So why should we give cheerfully? Because it's good for our hearts. How so? Proverbs 23, 4 and 5 says that wealth is fleeting. We all know this to be true. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist or refrain. When your eyes light on it, it's gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. Have you ever experienced this? Get a bonus check unexpectedly. I don't know, Aunt Betty passes away and you get your little chunk of the inheritance. You're like, wow, what am I going to do with this money? This is cool. Didn't expect it. Or you get one of those settlement checks from a settlement you didn't know was being settled. You're like, oh, this is awesome. How can I spend this? And then you're at work the next day. Wife calls and says, hey, the hot water tank's out. It's fleeting, right? Wealth is fleeting. Church family, we cannot tie our hearts to fleeting things. Our hearts naturally follow what we treasure. Isn't that what Jesus told us? Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Listen, I know folks who play the lotto or the mega millions, the Powerball, only when it gets up to like 400 gazillion or whatever, right? And all day long, they anticipate what they would do with that money, where they would go, what they would spend it on, what they would buy, and for the extent of that day, they are wholly interested in those numbers being read that night. I know you can relate. Listen, their, farts have, their, their, their hearts have followed this imagined treasure. However, if we believe that most of our treasure is awaiting us in heaven, that is where our hearts will be. Our giving reveals the purposes in our own hearts. If we say we love the Lord more than our hobby, 
but we spend all our money on our hobby and do not give to the Lord's work, then the way we spend our money shows the purposes of our hearts more accurately than our words do. Laying up treasure in heaven is one of the Bible's main arguments for why we should give. It protects our hearts from becoming attached to the things of this world. How enticed are you by the world? It's an important question to ask. How much do you love the world? Sometimes when we verbalize things, when we just say it out loud, we realize how ridiculous it sounds. Listen, how much do you love the world? Dying people, all clamoring for the affections and affirmations of other dying people and clamoring for decaying temporary goods. Isn't that an odd concept when you just say it out loud? Alternatively, how much do you long for heaven? Well, how much of your treasure is invested in heavenly things? If we ask ourselves these questions and ask the spirit to search our hearts and we find that our answers don't line up with scripture and we find that our hearts are overly consumed with the things of this world, we must give those things away. We must give those things away and pray that God would open our eyes to behold him above everything else. If we purposely find ways to put our treasure in heavenly things, our hearts will follow. Giving cheerfully will help to adjust our affections. Not giving or giving reluctantly or under compulsion will not untie our hearts from the things of this world. Only giving cheerfully will do that. And God asks us to give cheerfully because he wants our hearts. And in order for our ambitions and affections to be built on him and him alone, we have to recognize and rid our lives of other suitors for our affections. We have to ask ourselves hard questions, cross the pain line with ourselves and get real about our answers. You see, the world tells us to build and acquire wealth in order to gain financial freedom and to be independent. We're told to enrich ourselves in order to be free and never be left wanting and to find happiness. Our hearts desperately want this freedom and we'll try and test all the world has to offer as we store up and stock up on all kinds of temporary decaying things. But Paul says in verse 11 of 2 Corinthians 9, here's the qualifier, as a cheerful giver, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So as a cheerful giver, I get, so that I can give? Yes. I don't get to accumulate. No. And if we truly believe that all we have is God's, if we truly believe that everything is his and all that we are has been given to him by his gracious hand, we can ask ourselves a really deep heart question, something like this. If we believe it's all his, how much of God's money am I willing to spend to make myself more comfortable or entertained? Oh, that stings, doesn't it? It stings. You see, we should see giving as a beautiful practice that helps us to maintain proper perspective and to guard our hearts against all kinds of evils. We're gonna be tempted in all sorts of ways to use money for self. Self-promotion, self-worth, self-esteem. Resist those. Give it away cheerfully because God loves a cheerful giver and ask yourselves questions often that tell you where your treasure really is and by so doing will tell you 
or your heart, what your heart is really chasing. And listen, do not disconnect yourselves from your giving. If all of your giving is on cruise control, automatically deducted from your paycheck, or you have a recurring gift going on, that's okay, but don't disconnect yourselves from your giving. If, if your giving comes directly out of your paycheck, find that check stub every time it comes out and pray over it, that God would allow you to behold him as that money is directed towards his kingdom's work. For the sake of your heart, find ways to connect with your giving every time you give. Listen, ignored giving can't be cheerful giving, I don't think. Number two, we should give cheerfully because it glorifies God, which is the ultimate reality of the text here in 2 Corinthians 9, 7. This is the ultimate reality. This verse tells us that it is the cheerful giver who pleases God. That's contrary to giving out of duty or because we have to. So it's fair to say that the, uh, the New Testament gives us other options that, uh, in regards to giving. We see things like opportunity and joy and God's glory as the basis for our giving. So why would giving out of duty be so dangerous? Well, because it attempts to rob God of his glory. Remember Isaiah 48, God says, my glory, I will not give to another. You see, when we give out of duty, it promotes us. And it seeks to steal God's glory for ourselves. Giving out of duty says, listen, look how obedient I am. I'm following the rules. I'm doing my duty. Look at me. Oh, we have a tendency to be idolatrous self-promoters, don't we? Self-worship is the world's fastest growing religion and the church of me is the fastest growing church on the face of the earth. See, giving our money from duty is self-absorbed and giving our time and service to the Lord, even here in church, if it's done from duty and obligation, is also self-absorbed and dangerous. Listen, someone who is serving for themselves and for their own glory will be easy to spot when that area of service is changed, removed, or disrupted. They will melt into a state of crisis. If you're near that person or that happens to be you, listen to your or their words, how they undermine, insult, and divide because their tower of me is being deconstructed. See, they were serving in the church. Check the box. They were serving in an area of need. Check the box. But that gift of service will be of no value as it was not done cheerfully, but rather selfishly and under compulsion from their own ego. Now, I would hope that some of you would be loving enough to tell me if we were on a walk together, and I haven't had a chance to do this yet, but if we were going to see the Redwoods and the Sequoias at Redwood National Park, which I am very anxious to do, I would hope that you would be loving enough to tell me if we were walking together and we came upon one of these Sequoias, and for the first time, I see it, and we're there together, and I'm looking at this thing, and I'm sizing it up in amazement, and I'm looking at you and you're looking at me and I'm looking at you looking at me and I look at this thing and I go, would you look at how awesome I am? I hope that some of you would be loving enough to say to me, please stop being an idiot. You're ignoring the grandeur of the one who actually made that thing. You see, we can easily think that we're getting away with it when it comes to giving of our money, time, and service because the self-aggrandizement isn't as obvious as it would be in that scenario. But listen, it is as egregious because God sees our hearts. 
God sees our hearts. Think for a moment about your own serving, whatever area of serving, whether it's on the choir, standing at the door greeting folks, in the children's wing. Are you giving cheerfully of yourself when you're standing by the door greeting folks into the church? Is it evident that your whole soul is interested in standing there for the esteem of the Lord? It should be. Charles Spurgeon once said, where there is living soul service, there must be a blessing. But if we do not serve our master cheerfully and consequently do not do it earnestly, God will not love the service and nothing will come from it. God says, my glory, I will not give to another. Loved ones, we have to be so wary of trying to steal what is God's and God's alone. Giving our service with joy and cheerfully glorifies God. When we cheerfully part with our money as we seek to glorify God, we proclaim, look how good and worthy God is. Now, if we were to look back at verses one through six in 2 Corinthians 9, we would notice that the apostle Paul had been speaking about giving all through the chapter. But as we look specifically at verse seven, Paul wants to discuss giving, listen, as it appears in the sight of God, in the sight of God. And the argument that Paul chooses is, God loves a cheerful giver. Paul wants us to understand that we should always view our giving as it relates to God. Do not miss that point. You see, he had discussed what the members of other churches might think of the Corinthians since he had previously boasted about them earlier in the chapter, but he remembers himself and says that true judgment of a good work is not what the church or what other people think, but what God himself may think of it. God, he says, loves a cheerful giver. That's the point. Loved ones, is our giving done ultimately with the glorification of God first in our minds and in our hearts? You see, our giving should be done cheerfully to show off the goodness and the glory of Christ because he is amazing. Because he's amazing, because he's the creator and sustainer and giver of all things. Listen, just spend some time in Genesis 1. I came back to this my family and I started doing our family devotions in Genesis and I couldn't help with this in the back of my mind getting up here and speaking to you this morning on giving. We went through the account in Genesis 1 and almost every word of it spoke to me. God's the great giver. God the great giver. Beholding him, just listen. There was nothing and God gave. He created the heavens and the earth. There was dark and God said, let there be light. And God saw that the light was good. God, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And God gave more. He said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God gave, he made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse and it was so. And God gave, he called this expanse heaven. And God gave some more. He said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together. And God gave some more and God said, let the dry land be called earth. And God gave some more. He said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed. And God gave some more. Let there be lights. Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And God gave some more. Let there be two great lights to rule over the night and day. And then listen, God gave more. He gave us life. Then God said, let us make man in our image. 
And then he gave some more. He said, come into partnership with me as I give all this to you. I'm going to give you dominion over all of this. And we have dominion over it. And then in verse 29, God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. God said, I have given every green plant for food. Behold, it was good. It was good. God, the great giver, as we behold him. Think with me now for a moment. All the gifts, the scent of clean mountain air, the joy of the first cry of a newborn baby, a delicious meal, the sound of waves breaking on the beach, the smell of a campfire, the warm embrace of your spouse, the uncontrollable laughter of a child being tickled. The first time you hear your child say, I love you. Gentlemen, the glow of your bride as she walks down the aisle. The smell of your husband's pillowcase. The voice of a comforting friend. The first time you see your son catch his first baseball. Stay with me. The tragedy of losing your child. The diagnosis. The heartache of the failed marriage. The bankruptcy. The humiliation of losing your job. The hurtful words from someone you hoped would build you up. All of it is a gift that we may behold him more, that we may know him more and depend on him more. All of it is a gift. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. You may see the second half of that list and say, I, but I don't want those things. I don't want those things. Oh, yes, you do. If they're, if they're from the hand of a good, loving father who wants us to behold him more. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The creator gave and gave for God so loved the world. He gave us his only son. All of it, all of it from the hand of a loving, all-knowing father who seeks his glory and our good. Oh, let your heart swell for a moment with a deep appreciation of our amazing God. How do we respond? How do we respond to this immeasurable wealth of the goodness of God? How do we respond? We proclaim it. We proclaim it as we talk to our neighbors about Jesus. We proclaim it as we give our money away to make more proclamation possible. This is how our cheerful giving glorifies God. We give it because we want to, and in order to want to, we must behold him. We must. God approves of a cheerful giver because that cheerfulness proclaims, look at my God, look at my king, look at my savior. Church family, God is overflowing with the goodness of mercy. While we were still his enemies, God gave his precious son to die in our place. Not compulsed to die. Not reluctant 
to die. He said, no one takes my life from me, but I give it, I lay it down of my own accord. He cheerfully gave it up because he sought glory for his father. John 10, 17 tells us, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. We should give cheerfully because Jesus is so much better than anything this world has to offer. What will last forever are not the things of this world, but the souls in this world. The story our lives tell as we give and serve and the condition of our hearts when we do tell about the goodness and glory of God or not. Every time we give, we're making a statement that God is better than anything else we could have done with that money. If we're not giving at all, we are making a statement that everything else we do with that money is better than God. If we give cheerfully, we are making a statement that God is so worthy and delightful and good that nothing other than his goodness could cause us to give. And if we give reluctantly or under compulsion, listen, we are saying that we still require convincing that God is worthy. We still require convincing that he's actually delightful or good. And that kind of giving will count for nothing. When our giving requires faith, remember without faith, it is impossible to please God. So when our giving requires faith, when we are tempted, really tempted to do something else with that money and it really requires faith to give it away and we do, and we do give it away, it makes a very powerful statement about God's worthiness, doesn't it? You see, your faithfulness in giving that way turns a simple financial transaction into something of eternal value. Is your giving respectable and reasonable in the eyes of this world? Or is it nuts and foolish from their perspective because you're risking everything on the promises of God? Church family, there is no safer place to be than believing God's promises. Does all of this, does all of this hit you in your reality like it does me? We have to make money decisions every day. This is real. Young couples, when you're sitting down at the table and crunching numbers, trying to figure it all out, and you're just plain scared to give. Been there. You're just plain scared to give. I want you to consider this. Consider this. Christ defeated death. Do you believe that? If you believe that Christ defeated death, if you truly believe it, then listen, your fear of death must go. If you believe that Christ defeated death, your fear of death must go go. And if your fear of death is gone, then any fear of God being able to sustain you if you give must go. It must go. Non-givers, compulsed givers, reluctant givers, pray, get in God's word and spend time beholding him. Spend time beholding him. Cheerful givers, continue pondering the inexpressible gift of God, God's indescribable gift of salvation in Christ. This is what inspires all true cheerful giving. We should give to protect our hearts and we should give to glorify God because he is worthy. Amen? He is worthy. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we desperately need your help. 
God, in order to be able to give this way, in order to be able to see you for your worthiness and your good, we need your help, Lord, to crowd out the things of this world that cause us to doubt your goodness. God, we're desperate for you. God, I pray that this church family would, God, make time specifically to behold you, to talk about you when we get up in the morning and when we go to bed at night and when we're walking and talking and conversing. God, I pray that we would consistently behold you in all of our decision-making, our giving, our serving. We cannot do it on our own. We desperately need the Spirit's help. God, we pray that you would help us this morning and that we would trust you. God, we pray that we would become givers, Lord, not for any selfish gain, but to glorify you because you are worthy. God, we say this morning, we trust you. We trust you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.